Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Welcome back to Minutes from Latvia, the podcast produced by Latvian Public Media. My name is Mike Collier, and I'm delighted to welcome another guest to the pod this week, uh, someone I actually hold in very high regard, uh, Andis Kudors of the Centre for East European Policy Studies. Uh, Andis is one of these think tankers who we're all hearing about at the moment, but I think he's one of the better ones, one of the best ones, I'd even go so far as to say. And uh, as a mere journalist, I often, you know, come up with little ideas, uh, think certain things. And whenever I see then Andis uh, post something online along similar lines, I think, well, maybe I was actually oh, right about that. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe this had some sort of uh, basis in reality. So you're a bit of a touchstone for me. Uh, the other thing I, that really brought, me, brought Andis to my attention was he said what I think is one of the best things that has ever been said to describe Latvia. Uh, during, I can't remember exactly what the discussion was, but he said that it was about minorities. And Andis, you said that uh, Latvia was a society in which every part of society felt like it was part of a minority. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a very good quote, but I also think it's quite profoundly true. And it really helps to understand Latvia, to understand that, which a lot of people miss. Um, so welcome to the booth. And if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and about the Center for East European Policy Studies, please. Yeah, thank you for having me here and thank you for kind words. Our Center for East European Policy Studies were established in 2006 and we saw that there is some kind of empty space in Russia's study, uh, studies here in Latvia because probably Latvians in that time considered themselves to be smart enough to understand what is going on in Russia without special... Uh, without uh, paying special attention uh, to studying it, really. But we, as time is going, I mean, there is already 25 years we are in different countries. We have to really make good studies to understand what what is motivation behind uh, Russian activities. And it's and one of the, our mission we can see is make some translation of what Russia official Russia says. And what it does, and what what is what kind of meaning, what kind of motivation is behind it? Because it's not really translation in linguistic sense; it's more semantic translation. Because we know Russian language and we understand Russian culture, we are quite familiar with that. And sometimes we can see that in the Western world there is necessity to translation. I mean, there are so many good experts in the West, and I saw them also in Washington D.C. I was Fulbright scholar on the end of 2014 and beginning of 2015, I was actually surprised how good knowledge is among American experts about Russia. But still, sometimes is we can help sometimes because we are here as a frontline states. And this is our focus on our studies. We are studying Russian foreign policy, especially toward neighboring countries. And uh, we like to try to understand what Russia mean by this so-called humanitarian dimension of Russian foreign policy. We can say soft power here, but we can say strategic communication, but those words that Russians are using, it's quite interesting what they are putting in it. 
It's quite interesting what you say about, I mean, you often hear that Latvia, Latvians kind of understand Russia. Uh, they obviously have a, had a close relationship over a long period of years in various different ways. But is there a bit of a danger in that, that Latvians can sort of think, yeah, we understand Russia based on the previous experience and not realizing that Russia is changing quite fast as well? This is why I said we have to study. And that's why that was not enough in 2007, 2006 when we started. Because sometimes, yes, our perception was quite emotional. And uh, yes, it's of course we have this Soviet legacy. We have some cultural traumas because of Soviet period, because of Soviet occupation. And uh, therefore, it's good that social scientists of Latvia are traveling abroad a lot. And there are so many of our professors in Latvian universities who spend some time in the Western European universities and think tanks and in, in North American think tanks and universities. So I think this synthesis of this understanding is good. I believe this product in nowadays is, is quite valuable. And well, we have all seen that Russia is completely dominating the headlines in pretty much all respects uh, at the moment. It that's kind of a big change from when you set up, isn't it? Because it was still very much, you know, people were talking about Wild East and all this kind of thing, but more in economic terms than in uh, soft and indeed hard power terms. I remember I just once again read our study we made in 2009 about Russian uh, foreign policy toward Baltic states and Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia. And I, I saw, you know, days I just realized how many of indicators of that something is coming different in Russia we saw already in 2009. We didn't understand what will happen. We didn't know what will happen in, in Crimea. We didn't know what will happen with uh, economics of, of Russia. But all those indicators were there in that time because I believe turning point of Russian foreign policy was years just after Cold War revolutions in Russian neighboring countries like Georgia and Ukraine. In 2005 uh, till 2007 was a turning point where everything we can see nowadays, what is happening in Russia's politics, domestic politics, foreign policy and economic development, everything was already like planned in 2006-2007. I mean, that's interesting. I remember going to things like the Riga conference you know, just after the uh, Georgia conflict had taken place and people were saying things like, you know, we've got to look at this, this is changing the game and we might see this repeated. And yet when it, these a few years later Ukraine happens, it seems to take everyone by surprise. I mean, this kind of leads me on to what I wanted to ask about think tanks, about this sort of research. Does it really influence things? I mean, what is the ideal situation in which you, know, you produce a report? What do you want to see done with it? Or is it, you know, it seems to me sometimes it's kind of disseminated amongst the think tanks or amongst the experts and they all kind of debate it in-house, but it doesn't always percolate through to, to actual action. Yeah, it depends. I remember I was in Washington DC in 2007. I tried to explain that what we are seeing in Russian compatriots policy, it's policy toward Russians who are residing outside of Russia and what is happening in Russian media influence in the neighboring countries. That was so hard. There was just a few listeners among like real uh, foreign policy implementers and politicians. Of course, among uh, 
political scientists that was understanding was deeper, especially, I must say, among so-called Sovietologists. Mm-hmm. That was the they understood in that time, and they are in nowadays also. They are they are continuing to understand that you have to translate everything what officials in Moscow are saying. But it's not so easy. I mean, we are not gods who can predict what will happen. I mean. Sometimes uh, I believe Vladimir Putin also doesn't know what will happen in two years or three years. It's we cannot like demand from uh, think tanks just to predict everything what will happen. But mm. I believe we can help how to think about Russia. What are factors we have to look and what what we have to avoid, like or ignore. And I believe that my thesis is simple that. Everything what Putin does is connected with simple purpose for domestic uh, politics inside of Russia. That is to keep status quo of elite, Russian elite, political elite, which is connected with business elite, which is, I would call it, like one common elite. Those guys who are living around Vladimir Putin, who are billionaires, they are happy people. I believe they do not want third world war. Why? They will be like keen to lose everything they have where they will hiding i don't know in venezuela where in belarus it's like we're in china it's like mm. in nowadays this is good period of life for them they need stability what kind of stability tensions between russia and the west otherwise there will be no legitimacy of uh, vladimir putin's regime inside of russia and i believe that this perspective to analyze what putin does not just inside of russia but also in regional policy and on the global level is always connected with this one and all values and civilization and narratives and russia's orthodox uh, fortress etc is just a instrumentalization it's just a tools for uh, for the p- political purposes. I mean, I tend to agree, and I, I think the media is culpable as well uh, in this forming this idea that there's this grand plan which has been set in stone for many years, and you know, it seems that every commentator is is keen to offer his psychological insights into what Putin's really thinking, whereas mm-hmm. it's much easier to actually judge him by his actions and uh, rather than try and second guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the words third world war as well, rather than making me do it, because we've had quite a big, uh, not exactly a controversy, but a lot of people talking this week about an article that came out in the US publication Foreign Policy, uh, which had quite a sensationalist headline about... Uh, uh, the Third World War is could start in Latvia, I think, and the uh, the writer was uh, brandishing his credentials as having apparently predicted the uh, conflict in Ukraine, and then his next uh, prediction was that something similar was going to kick off in Latvia. Um, is there any credibility to this, or is it just a case of uh, kind of going for a dramatic scenario because it's going to get the clicks? Yeah, I don't believe that... Putin and his cycle of trust, I mean, those Silovaki and other persons who are near to his body, as, as Russians are saying, I mean, those are important who can have access to body of a president of Vladimir Putin. I mean, they can influence his thoughts and, and acts. Uh, I don't believe that they want to have real war against NATO, because if there is no uh, if we didn't if we would didn't see uh, couldn't see um, 
war in uh, um, Ukraine and annexation of Crimea. Maybe that would be a more dangerous situation in nowadays in the Baltics. Now, after annexation of Crimea, we saw reaction from NATO countries. We saw reaction from uh, from Joe Biden, who recently visited Riga, and said that fifth paragraph is still in ch- uh, actual, and United States will will support Baltic states in in any cases. So in any situations, Barack Obama was in Tallinn. Uh, Angela Merkel was in. Latvia. I mean, uh, all those messages was strong and direct and simple that that West will will stand for for the Baltic states. I mean, without that, yes, maybe we could be in some dangerous situation. Putin would maybe could decide to test credibility of NATO. Mm. In nowadays, I don't believe that he he will. But there was, re, you know, reassurance from Biden and so on when he came to Riga. I mean, Biden's on the way out. Obama's on the way out. We've got Mr. Trump on the way in. If it was the case, would it not be the case that if you were Putin and you thought, well, if a chance is going to come along to drive a wedge into NATO or to, to split it up, all the cards seem to be falling in my favor. We've got Brexit. We've got lots of other things which seem to be increasing tensions between countries that are usually working together. Might it be worth a roll of the dice? Putin needs NATO. Otherwise, who will be adversary? I mean, in this narrative game, we and them, like we good and they evil, it's, yeah, with the radical Islamic terrorists, is not enough. Yes, there is. this is threat for well, for Europe. This is threat really also from, for Russia. That's for sure. But it's nothing, it's not as good for this game which Putin plays. I mean, look to the last uh, newest uh, national security strategy of Russia. Who is the enemies? Well, what is the threat? Of course, NATO. Why they can write that NATO is a threat? Because NATO is not a threat to Russia. Mm. Why they are not writing China is, is risk. Why they are not writing it? Because it will really become real risk in the very soon. They are quite careful what kind of names they are using. I mean, look at this strategy. China is mentioned maybe two sentences. That's it. Mm. But ask real what uh, Russian uh, representatives of elite are thinking about China, you will get something more different than not they are writing. Uh, so it's like it's more game. They they need NATO part. I mean, I am speaking now only about highest elite of Russia. If we'll go down a little bit, yes, picture will be different. There are so many people in Russia who really believe that NATO is adversary, it's, it's enemy, mm. it's really evil. Uh, they are I don't believe that Russian elite believe. They are cynical users of all those narratives uh, about uh, spirituality, etc. They are Westerners, where they are keeping money in the West, where their children are studying in the best Western universities in North America and in Europe. So it's like, it's game, but it's dangerous game. Why? Because they persuaded people inside of Russia. There are so many angry people inside of Russia who believe, who trust to Putin's propaganda. And that is something which is not joke. Mm. And this is something, yes, we, we can be a little bit nervous, but I don't believe that political elite or business elite will, will do something against NATO. And this, uh, you know, this idea of Russia being the largest country in the world being encircled as well is certainly nothing new. I've been reading lots of sort of 18th, 19th century literature, and you just see exactly the same things coming out time and time again, whether it's, you know, the British Empire or the Turks or whoever. It it seems to be, I suppose, ever since the the Mongols came across, they've had this idea that uh, that, uh, 
everyone around is out to get them. Um, one final thing in this segment of the podcast I wanted to ask was an announcement that came out yesterday from the Latvian Defense Ministry uh, saying that they have invited senior Russian Defense Ministry uh, personnel to Riga for talks about... Uh, the situation along the border, um, the large-scale drills which Russia's been having, you know, snap drills, quite uh, large ones on a, on a regular basis. It seemed a little bit curious because the a similar invitation came from Russia in August. Uh, it seemed to be initially kind of laid to one side, and then only yesterday we get a, a reply inviting in the opposite direction. It does, is this a change? Because it seems like it's a a little bit of a change as to what the policy was before. Yeah, I believe, I don't know really, but it's like just my how I read the situation. It's just the uh, Latvian side decide to answer to Russian invitation by the same kind of invitation because meeting here in Latvia is quite comfortable more and uh, for our like bureaucracy and for our politicians. I mean, we can, it's better also for how to explain it to media. I mean, if it will happen in Russia, we know how Russian propagandists are working. It's like, we'll see what kind of outcome that will be. If it's happening here, it's... I don't want to say we are controlling that, everything that is happening, but it's like, it's more comfortable. And we'll see that Russians will come or not. What is important, Russians were first who invited, I mean, Latvian side. And I can see that not just in this defense sphere, but in so many spheres, Russia, you know this is trying to find some small points they can agree with the European countries, especially with Baltic states, because they are suffering uh, because of sanctions. Of course, the economy of Russia start to decline before sanctions, which is an important point. But nevertheless, there is shortage of uh, finances for Russian businessmen. They're going to Vladimir Putin and saying, look, help us. It's not good enough. We cannot get credits in the Western banks, etc. This is really a problem for them. And other, those, as I know, those individuals who are in the blacklist of the Western countries, I mean Russian uh, politicians and uh, bureaucrats, they, they're also suffering. As I said, part of them are really Westerners. They want to travel to the West. They, and now they are suffering. They are not saying it openly, but they don't like this situation that they cannot travel freely as they used to do in the West. So they are trying to, and also Trump phenomena. It's the, Russia is trying and will try to, to somehow uh, soften this uh, sanctions belt. And I'm looking to this invitation from the Russian uh, military resource all in this huge picture that they are trying to, to soften something. And of course, they know that Western troops will deployed, uh, will be deployed here in the Baltic states. They, they, are, they try to get to know how many, where, what they will do. So it's on the tactical level, I'm not against that kind of communication. It's quite good. We're neighboring mm. countries. Why not? But I hope that we will not jump out from to the strategic level. I believe we have to have the strategic patience with Russia. And this is not time to really warm up our relations because look to the Minsk agreements, look to what is happening in Syria and in Ukraine. Mm. This is not time yet. 
Do you think that if these sorts of talks do take place, it would be a better idea if maybe all three Baltic states and maybe Poland as well, all of which share borders with uh, Russia, all get together and present a united front rather than dealing one-on-one? Yes, I strongly believe I agree with you. It's It would be better. And this is old style of Russian diplomacy. Always start with one and improve relations with one and worsening with another. Mm-hmm. It's it's old story, but it works, unfortunately, in the Baltic states. And I would like to see, yes, it, it would be better to speak together. Great. Well, we'll bring the first half of the podcast to a close with that. And we'll be back after this message uh, talking about Ukraine, lessons that we can learn from there, particularly with regard to the media. Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Welcome back to the second half of the Minutes from Latvia podcast with me, Mike Collier, and my guest today, Andis Kudors of the Centre for East European Policy Studies. Um, I know that the centre has done quite a lot of research uh, on what's happened in Ukraine, what's happening in Ukraine, uh, particularly with regard to Russia's info war, attempts to exert uh, influence and power in various other ways. You produced a report which I thought was very good because it was about resistance to this uh, phenomenon. And that's a word that I haven't really seen used. Usually we're talking about soft power or propaganda, but actually resistance carries with it the idea that you're doing something about it, that you're aware of it and you're reacting without necessarily resorting to counter-propaganda. What do you think are the lessons that we can take from Ukraine as it stands at the moment? We have to understand that Ukraine is like really in different situation than we are. Why? Because if you are in a situation of real war, even if it's located in some small areas, if you look to the big Ukraine, I mean, I can say small. For Latvia, that would be huge areas, I Mm. mean, of real uh, war uh, activities. In that situation, always, in all wars, in the same time is happening informational war from both sides. Therefore, not everything what Ukraine does necessarily we can do because we are not in this conventional phase of war. I mean, we are. Yes, there are there are so many informational attacks and uh, informational campaigns against Baltic states. They are continuing. They started it even before annexation of Crimea. We saw it, but still, uh, what I like in Ukraine, they are quite active. They have several, uh, like let's let's call them like centers of resistance who are working with this propaganda, who are trying to explain to larger society inside of Ukraine and outside Ukraine what Russia does, what kind of methods they are using. And one of the like strong narratives Russia is using against the Ukraine as well as against Baltics, especially against Latvia and Estonia, is fascism narrative or mm. rebirth of Nazism in the, in the Baltic states and in, in Ukraine, which works to get, with aim to get uh, effective reaction, that means emotional reaction. And this is just naturally that, especially inside of Russia and also outside of Russia in the neighboring countries where are so many so-called Russian speakers who had relatives like grandfathers who died during Second World War. It's just naturally for them to feel it like very personal. Yeah. And this is what um, Russian propagandists are using. They are, they are using this emotional the simple idea is if you are saying to a larger audience in Russia they are Nazis outside somewhere they are still alive it's for for Russians our Russians reaction will be how we defeat Nazism in during second world war let's 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 kill those hmm. or 
and therefore this is way also how to recruit volunteers and or to encourage people to make demand to their authorities to send troops for example so it works maybe it it would not work in different in other uh, places in europe but in those places in so called post soviet area it it is one of the strong instrument and what's the best way to uh, well counter this message without lapsing into counter propaganda is it simply to do things like encourage you know ordinary russians to come here for holidays and things and, as well i mean i've spoken to people who say quite surprised that they're not <laughs> beaten up in the streets you know when they so, come here and it's actually quite pleasant yeah i know russians uh, personally who came here with stereotypes well educated russians liberal minded like pro democracy minded people who came here with that kind of that kind of stereotypes they are afraid to speak uh, russian openly on the streets yeah. that was so like surprising for me but uh, it's not surprise russia is using story about us like about third part that means if someone is telling something about bolivia me here to me or colombia places where i have never been it's i'm in a risk situation because mm. i'm not interested to study that i will i'm not interested to to check in alternative informational sources whether it's true that means i'm in in a risky situation this is exactly what russia does explaining inside of russia and outside of russia about baltic states because people are not able to come here and check and they are not interested to study us we are small countries uh, not so important i mean in this uh, global scale of international politics and uh, therefore i i supported the idea that european union have to give free reserve with the regime with the russia mm-hmm. they are coming here they are seeing that those are lies and they are they are changing minds uh, and to answer to your question what is the best action the best uh, counter action is to to speak about different topics not about it's not good enough to say we are not neo-Nazis. Yeah, it's, it's because like, you're still talking about neo-Nazis. Exactly. Then, aren't you? Yeah. So we have to expl- We have to say, come to Christmas time here to Old Riga. You will see hospitality. You will see good people who will welcoming you, who will communicate with you friendly. So, and etc. What what is bad in this uh, regards? Asymmetry. Baltic states mm. have do not have enough resources to implement huge uh, programs of public diplomacy but we have to i believe in future we will speak about it more in latvia about public diplomacy about building bridges of trust with other nations well and also media here doesn't really have nearly enough resources to compete like for like with russian media but do you think we should be spending a bit more on russian media here in latvia to show that well you can be an ethnic russian you can live in a country with democracy and you can have a business you can do all these things you have a right to citizenship if you take it up yes. uh, and kind of use as a as a well, a model of civilization as it were yes it's those model of behavior it's good to show them i mean this is real soft power if you show if you not just say something but you are showing some some model of life this is like russian tv channel dosh where rain is working they are not just giving alternative view to what is happening in russia they are showing uh, like different uh, style of life i mean yeah it's, it's a different mindset isn't yeah, it yeah yeah and that is something i mean we that that is better than just to say no you are wrong 
So finally, I mean, what would you say would be kind of best case scenario, worst case scenario for relations between Latvia and Russia over the next couple of years? We are in so-called cold peace. Probably Estonians uh, use this uh, this uh, notion to describe relations between Estonia and Russia. So we are in some kind of stability. Latvian foreign policy is not anymore like um, something different from EU foreign policy, which is good because otherwise Russia can use in those games like particular countries to split or divide European countries. Uh, but the strongest voice in communication with Russia, European voice, is when we have really one voice. And especially if this voice also is together with uh, American voice, this is the super strong element in diplomacy, uh, in communication with Russia. So I hope we will continue with that. I would predict that in next year, in uh, in year after, uh, will Russia will try to once again split Baltic states to divide European Union countries. They are already trying to do, but probably now because of problems of sanctions, they will do it more. They are already trying to get some particular politicians here in Latvia and uh, particular countries in the European Union. Uh, we have to have strategic patience. We have to work with Russia in those economic areas which is not uh, connected with political demands from Russian side. It's good to have good trade. Why not? And it's good to have sanctions against individuals in, in Russia uh, who are supporting uh, aggression against Ukraine. So it's not black and white picture when we look what we have to do and what not to do. I'm not against like isolation from Russia. We we have to communicate, but we don't have to go to strategic level of warming of relations because Russia is behaving as aggressor against Ukraine. So it's it's they are challenging a regime of international norms. It's we we have to stand together with other European countries. Great. Well, uh, Andis Kudos, thank you very much for joining me today. That was uh, very educational as far as I was concerned. And um, I would uh, urge everyone to go and check out the website and the various reports that you have. I'll put a link uh, on the uh, pod information. Um, I'll see you again in another couple of weeks for another Minutes from Latvia. Cheerio. Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Produced by Renar Steimans for Latvian Public Media. Find out more at www.lsm.lv.